0: Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Moby. So today, we are going to talk to one of my climate heroes, Peter Kalmus. And I love all of our guests, and I think all of our guests have amazing perspectives and stories. But I'm really excited to talk to Peter because in a very real way, the climate emergency is the biggest issue that has ever faced our species. And it's just baffling to me that more people aren't doing everything in their power to address the climate emergency. So that's why I'm thrilled to talk to Peter, because Peter, like I have a lot of friends or people I follow on social media who are climate activists, and a lot of them are kind of gentle, like they're very, they're sort of apologetic and diplomatic. And what I love about Peter is he's not diplomatic and he's not a gentle climate activist. Like he's a doctor, you know, he's got a PhD, works for NASA, but is out there getting arrested being a climate activist. And he also unapologetically talks about the role of meat and dairy production in climate change. And the fact that meat and dairy production is either the second or third leading cause of climate change, depending on how you look at it.
1: Yeah, I love how when we talk to Peter, as you'll hear in the conversation, he is so passionate and you really feel how dire the situation situation is, but there's a lot of information that he has to share that's valuable for everyone. I mean, he's a data scientist, worked with NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Um, he also wrote a book about things you can do called Being the Change, Live Well and Spark a Climate Revolution, where you can learn about a lot of the stuff for yourself. He's also, uh, he founded a smartphone app called Earth Hero that helps people learn how to like reduce their emission, reduce their carbon footprint and be a climate activist yourself. Also, something I love about Peter Kalmus is that he's been arrested a few times for doing really badass stuff, such as chaining himself to the main doors of the Charlotte Douglas International Airport to protest uh, emissions from flying. He was one of the first voices in the Fly Less movement, but also got arrested for chaining himself to the door of the J.P. Morgan Chase Building in L.A., protesting the bank's investments in new fossil fuel projects so Peter Kalmus is a badass and really really tough and fun and smart and I really really hope that you enjoy our conversation with him and feel inspired to make changes in your life afterward because I did.
0: So Peter, thank you for joining us. This is really exciting uh, because quite a while ago, someone sent me links to your work and I mainly knew you as a a climate activist. And I have to say the unapologetic way that you approach climate activism was so inspiring. So Lindsay and I are both really thrilled that you're here.
2: Oh, thanks. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I don't know how everyone stays so calm about what's happening to the planet. But I'm trying to push everyone to a somewhat higher level of urgency, I guess. Well, because there's so much
0: climate-related stuff we want to get to. We also, Lindsay and I, are going to throw ourselves under the bus for a second and admit that uh, we don't know what gravitational waves are. So perhaps you can give us the dummies version of what a gravitational wave is because Lindsay and I are both kind of dummies when it comes to the world of astrophysics.
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, so I, I started out in physics. I got a PhD in Columbia um, in 2008, and then my PhD was on gravitational waves. And then I had a postdoc at Caltech for another four years. And then I switched into climate science in in 2012. So yeah, my first love was uh, cosmology and gravitational waves and astrophysics. And gravitational waves are uh, literally ripples through space-time that propagate at the speed of light. It's pretty fucking amazing what they are and that that we've actually discovered them. So I, I I was so worried about climate change that I um, left gravitational wave astrophysics a couple of years before the big discovery. And so, you know, I I feel really proud that I contributed to that in my own small way, working on the detectors, helping to calibrate the detectors, doing some searches for gravitational waves uh, from the strongest magnets known in the universe called magnetars, which are these magnetic neutron stars. But ultimately I'm like, man, I can't keep doing astrophysics when it feels like our planet is going on life support and burning up on our watch. So I'm like, I gotta use my talents and my energies to do whatever I can to stop Earth breakdown. So that's why I left astrophysics. And we wanna get to
0: that eventually, um, and especially putting things in a sort of broader cosmological context. But first, like when we interview people, I really like to get to know them based on their history. And so I have a mm. first question, which is, are you Canadian or is it just that smart people always <laughs> sound
2: Canadian? I'm, I'm definitely not Canadian. I grew up outside of Chicago and um, my wife says I have kind of a weird way of talking. Like I say toilet instead of toilet. <laughs> I don't know why I, have, I talk like that. It's just I've always done so
0: so okay so let's I I, <laughs> I like to really find out the minutiae so you were born near or in Chicago yeah Hinsdale southwest suburbs and growing up were you similar to me like just like a baked in nerd from the get-go or did you ever have a period of actually like understanding sports and being popular
2: no I was a complete nerd um, in junior high school you know when I started getting interested in girls I like had a skateboard um, I was sort of a poser, I guess you could say. Um, And yeah, I was desperate to find some way to be cool. But really, I was just, I was really good at music, really good at math and science. And um, I was a boy scout too. So I guess I was good at tying knots and camping and stuff
0: were you inclined towards the world of science fiction? And if so, what? Oh, yeah,
2: I I definitely was. I read all the foundation books. I loved um, Arthur C. Clarke. I read some crazy Heinlein stuff. Loved Ray Bradbury, which, um, you know, Ray Bradbury, there are all these rockets going off all the time from, like, some center and I'm pretty sure that was JPL, which is the Jet Propulsion Laboratory or, like, you know, a fictionalized version of it, which is where I uh, uh, work right now. And, of course, I'm speaking on my own behalf. So yeah, I was a complete space nerd. I remember when I was in elementary school, I even read these books uh, called like Space Cat, where like it was this cat that would go in a rocket and he'd go out to all these crazy planets, you know. But yeah, uh, I was, um, I loved the planets. I loved the early Mars missions. I loved thinking about, things going on in the universe across the universe um, all the crazy stuff that's happening up there and yeah'm I'm, I'm actually really furious that our world leaders are doing so little to stop uh, global heating that I felt literally compelled to stop doing all of that and uh, switch into earth science so and and I'm sort of grateful too because it's pretty amazing to study the earth but yeah like I, I don't feel like it was really a, c- kind of a free choice on my part and um i feel really bad for young people right now too i just i don't understand what it's going to take how many heat waves how how many crazy fires up in canada it's going to take for world leaders i mean joe biden hasn't even declared a climate emergency yet like what is up with that what's it going to take
1: um, you have two kids, right?
2: I do. Yeah, they're both in high school now. And they, they don't really like space, uh, much to my chagrin. <laughs>
1: <laughs> how, how is it having two kids and doing the work that you do? Do you find it to be stressful? Are you trying to instill the same kind of urgency in them? Or how does having kids affect your outlook on the kind of dire state that we find ourselves in?
2: Yeah, good question. Well, it definitely motivates me and inspires me to try to work work as hard as I can. Um, sometimes I feel guilty mm-hmm. for not working harder than I do to, to, you know, make social change basically and publish good climate science. But but I don't put this on them. You know, I th- it's hard enough for me. Like, I barely have the emotional equipment and spiritual equipment to handle this. And I'm not going to, like, hit them over the head with it. But they're starting to ask me more questions. They ask me about capitalism. They ask me about, like, where this is all heading, like, how we actually, um, like, do we need, like, an actual revolution? You know, what's it going to take for the people in power to actually change things? So so I, I find those discussions really interesting to have with them. But yeah, I don't, you know, I, I hate being the Cassandra, you know, I'm, they don't they don't look at my Twitter because um, they're, you know, Twitter is basically for old people. Um, I think sometimes <laughs> their friends, like if I post a video on TikTok, sometimes their friends will tell them about it, but I don't think they watch that either. Um, but I hate being the Cassandra. Like I hate having to sort of tell these hard truths that that I think are terrifying. I think what's happening on the planet right now is genuinely terrifying. And if you're not terrified by it, you probably don't understand it. You know, the society is so kind of in denial about this that there's so many signals coming from all around, including world leaders, corporate leaders, that, you know, we can just continue with businesses as usual. And then there's a few voices like mine that are saying, no, like this is a fucking emergency and we have to like, all, you know, all hands on deck. We've got to deal with this. We have to switch into emergency mode. If we don't, literally billions of lives could be at risk. And then I'm, I'm like, I feel like such an asshole for saying that. I'm like constantly saying like, God, you're such an asshole for, for having to sound this alarm. But um, so it takes a big sort of psychic toll on me to do that. But um, I really do mm-hmm. it out of love. And I do it out of love for my kids, but also for for everyone and even non-humans. You know, um, uh, one of my projects is looking at the future of coral reefs. And um, I remember when I was writing the proposal for that. I was listening to uh, David Bowie's Black Star album just on repeat and crying, thinking about what was happening to the coral reefs. So somehow, you know, I I wish more people could empathize with with non-humans and even like the most alien non-humans like coral reefs because I certainly do. And, you know, I'm not, I can't stand idly by while this stuff is happening on my watch on planet Earth. The coral reefs don't get to come on your podcast and give their perspective. So I feel a pretty deep responsibility to do that on their behalf. So, so you've addressed one of the most
0: salient, disturbing aspects of the climate crisis, but it's that question of how do we get people to care? Because at present, for the mm. most part, it's information. And it reminds me a little bit, and maybe this is a weird analogy, but it reminds me of before I got sober. Like for Mm -hmm. the five years before I got sober, my alcoholism seemed like simply it was an idea. It was an option Mm -hmm. as opposed to when I truly bottomed out, I was confronted with the catastrophic actual consequences of my addiction. And that led me to get sober. And so it's a weird analogy, but I sort of think of humanity as being like someone who is like, an alcoholic who's still able to drink without too many terrible consequences. Like the hangovers aren't great, Mm. but they're still functioning. Because for most people, like they get in their car, they watch TV, they go to the supermarket, like everything. You know, sure, it might be hot. Maybe there's fires. But it's that question of like, how do you get people to care and make these radical, phenomenally necessary changes when for the most part, it's still in the
2: realm of data? I think that's probably the most important question uh, humanity is facing right now, actually. And um, I don't have a slam dunk answer. I, I think it's going to take... I don't know, messaging on multiple channels coming from all different directions. I've tried personally lots and lots of things. You know, I'm just one person, but I'm doing sort of everything I can to to try to break through that collective silencing, that collective denial that you were just talking about. Um, And the thing that's worked best in my experience so far has been good old nonviolent civil disobedience. Um, So I've been arrested twice for climate disobedience um, and uh, I've done other actions too, which, which I didn't get arrested for. But somehow when you take those risks, it's a form of communication. I think it's like a communications technology. And you're taking these data, these these scientific facts, and you're translating them into emotion and into sort of courage and then people that, that's what allows people to notice them right? It kind of it kind of bypasses the intellect and goes straight to the heart and straight to the spirit and then people are like oh, oh wow if, they're, if if these scientists are taking risks and uh, doing arrestable actions and even getting arrested then they, they really care about this like this really maybe it is an emergency. If the scientists are acting kind of like oh meh and we're showing charts and being boring and uh, don't seem <laughs> like we're really angry or sad or in grief or frustrated, then they're going to take... I I think those emotional cues are much stronger than the intellectual data.
1: Speaking of data, I feel like... Let's take it back a step. Basically, what I'm interested in is... Where are we and how did we get here? What is happening? What is the thing that is scaring you so much? And how did it occur? And I think we all have an idea of how it's happened on a basic Mm -hmm. level, but I'm very interested in hearing it from you, who's been on the ground and who knows it in such a deep way of where we are and how we got here.
2: Yeah, good question, Lindsay. Um, So, uh, you know, I could probably have like a multiple hour answer to that question, but I'll try to keep it as brief as I can. (laughs) I'm sure. So, so yeah, I my own awareness rose in 2006 which was when my first son was born and that was a big part of it so I kind of it mm-hmm. lurched me out of my own selfish, you know, you know, wanting things for myself, wanting career stuff, wanting accolades. You know, wanting pleasurable things, and made me kind of realize that hey, like this is a lot bigger than me. There are these other beings. They're going to be around here after me. And it was also the year that an inconvenient truth came out. I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to mm-hmm. say that, but maybe I shouldn't be because I mean, everyone makes fun of Al Gore, but he was really ahead of his time in in a lot of ways. And and that the movie like didn't have any good solutions. I thought you know the end when he basically says change your light bulbs. I was like dude, you just scared the shit out of me for like 90 minutes or whatever. <laughs> and now you're saying like the answer is to change our light bulb. So which I think just goes to show what sort of a hard problem it is. But we we have a lot more, a much better sense of the solution set now. But but anyway, um, yeah, that launched me on my journey. And uh, there was just, in 2006, I was halfway through my PhD in physics. I tried to get Columbia University to switch to wind power. Nobody cared. Um, I, I talked to professors. I talked to undergrads. I talked to administrators. There was one undergrad who joined my little crusade. All of the undergraduate green groups at that time, they couldn't have cared less about climate change. They were more worried about plastic bags in the dining hall, and, and they had their own projects. So I couldn't muster even the undergraduate green groups in 2006 to prioritize climate change. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've had a long journey. I don't I don't think, Lindsay, you're really not asking about my personal journey so much, but um, we can but talk I'm about that. But I'm very
1: interested in that as well. Oh, okay,
2: yeah. Well, we can talk I'll get to that a little bit later. But for now, I'll just say that, you know, in 2006, things were really frightening to me. Uh, I saw the path that we were on, and I thought that humanity would do the right thing. And I never imagined for a moment that we would be approaching 1.5 degrees Celsius of heating uh, in 2023. You know, we're at maybe 1.3 degrees right now. Things are getting crazy on planet Earth right now. Um, Things are crazier, I think, than I thought they would be by now. And even worse, people are doing a lot less than I thought they would at this point in the emergency. I thought when we had this level of heat, this level of sea level rise, this level of storms, this level of wildfire, that everyone would be like, oh shit, like we really got to do something about this. But that does not seem to be the case. Uh, you know, we've got world leaders around the world, including the Biden administration, and to say nothing of the Republicans. I mean, Trump obviously said it was a hoax and got his followers to believe that it was a hoax which is you know, arguably, in retrospect, will be seen as the most dangerous, the most damaging thing he did, you know, which is saying a lot because he did so many dangerous and uh, damaging things.
0: Okay, I'm going to offer this as just a point of discussion. And I hope that both of you don't get furious with me for raising this just as a possible strategy. I'm going to go back to my weird sobriety analogy metaphor. And when I was thinking of getting sober, I went to see a psychiatrist and his advice to me was to do more cocaine. And I looked at him, I was like, what do I, like, are are you you guilty of malpractice? Like, I'm here talking about addiction and your suggestion is that I do more cocaine. And he was this jolly old man and he laughed and he said, yeah, if you do more cocaine, trust me, you'll get sober a lot faster. The point being, like, if you keep drinking, you still got another good 10 years. If you start doing a lot more cocaine, you'll be sober in six months because it'll burn you out so fast. (laughs) So one possible approach make it worse because the only thing that's really going to wake up humanity to deal with it is actually making the problem worse. Like people in Texas and Florida and all over the world who can still pretend it's it's a hoax or it's information, much less so when where they live is categorically uninhabitable. So I'm just throwing that yeah. out there as a point of discussion, <laughs> so like Moby, the strategy of make things
2: worse. Moby, I would counter and say that there's no way the Biden administration could actually make things worse faster than they're doing right now. <laughs> yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They are literally uh, expanding drilling at unprecedented rates on federal lands, despite campaign promises uh, to the contrary. They are opening new pipelines, uh, liquid natural gas in the Arctic. They're opening new pipelines in West Virginia, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which, you know, Schumer and Manchin both got hundreds of thousands of dollars and essentially bribes to do. Um, So it's just like I think they're going they've been begging OPEC to increase production. I mean, um, I don't know how the world could be really going faster. The Inflation Reduction Act, if you look at it, you know, the the amount of of money earmarked for climate action over the next 10 years, it comes out to, uh, on an annual basis, roughly 6% of what the U.S. spends on the military, which is weirdly kind of, uh, for me, a little bit hopeful, because if we imagine if we spent 50% of what we spend on the military to have a livable planet. We would actually solve this problem so fast. Uh, t- t- to say nothing of if we spent the same amount or more uh, than we spend on, on the military to have a fucking livable planet for all of us and for future generations. We would solve this so fast. We just haven't gotten there yet. We haven't made it a priority. Um, the public hasn't made it a priority. The media hasn't made it a priority yet. Um, the media uh, basically reports in a very disjointed way about climate change. They don't connect the dots. They don't say like what's going to happen in the future. They'll report on, you know, a heat wave, but they won't say, oh, if we stay on this track of burning fossil fuels five years from now, it's going to be like this. 10 years from now, it's going to be like this. This is the coolest summer literally for the rest of your lives, right?
0: Yeah, you tweeted something about that, and the context it provided. I don't know if you were if this was your tweet or you were retweeting someone else, but you said, "Don't think of this as the hottest summer in human history. Think of this as the coolest summer for the next ten thousand
2: years." Well, maybe not ten thousand years, but definitely for the rest of our lives. And it depends on how much fossil fuels we burn, how long that heat is going to last, how long that tail is going to be. Right. So there's a lot of different impacts from burning these fossil fuels, and I. Should say by the way, Moby, especially since I'm talking to you, uh, maybe 75 or 80 percent of global heating is from burning fossil fuels. Most of the rest of it, maybe roughly 15 percent, very hand wavy, uh, maybe plus or minus five percent, is coming from the industrial animal agriculture industry. So that's a big part of it, too. Those are the two industries we've really got to target fossil fuels and animal agriculture if we want to have a planet that's not hellishly hot, too hot for us to inhabit most of.
0: Yeah, yeah and I actually, you mentioned. Mentioned Al Gore. And I do give him a lot of credit for being very consistent and like really like being one of the early proponents of this and drawing people's attention to it. And also I've hung out with him a lot of times, as I assume you guys have as well, or am I just name dropping? I've never met him, actually. Okay. The first time I met him, I asked him, I said, why in an inconvenient truth, both the book and the movie, did you not mention meat and dairy production? Because as you just mentioned, Mm. it's probably the third third leading cause of the climate emergency.
2: I would say second.
0: Yeah, and I thought he was going to give me this like mealy-mouthed politician answer, because as we know, like politicians love giving mealy-mouthed non- answers. And instead, he was so specific and so direct and he said, Moby, the reason I didn't mention meat and dairy production in an inconvenient truth is it's too inconvenient of a truth for most
2: people. Yeah,
0: I, I know what he means. But I loved how, like, he was so unco- like he was so direct about it and I was like, Wow, you're I, I wish that wasn't the case, but thank you for being so so direct and not trying to skirt the issue. Yeah.
1: Um I wonder when you try to talk to the average person, my my dad who lives in Texas who has Marjorie Taylor Greene in his ear saying climate change isn't real and mm-hmm. fossil fuels are good. Yes, there's alarm and there's people saying it's not real. So what I would love to know is how do you combat that on the most basic level of it is real and this is why. What do you say to people in those moments?
2: Yeah. Good question. So, um, you know, the short answer is I don't really spend my energy trying to convince the sort of what you could call the hard deniers or the conservative climate deniers who think that the science is wrong and that it's just a hoax. There's another denial, which is uh, potentially even more damaging, which is the neoliberal denial or the soft denial. So the people who say, yeah, okay, Mm. we accept the science. This is bad. But then when activists, uh, you know, throw soup at glass that's covering a painting, they clutch their pearls and they're like holy crap, you can't damage art. And they get more pissed off about that than they ever do about the about fossil the fuel art, industry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they get more pissed off about that than about how the fossil fuel industry has been literally lying and spreading disinformation and blocking action for decades and how we're losing coral reefs. We probably won't have coral reefs on planet Earth after, or at least certainly not as we know them, after mid-century. How we're losing the mm. forests in the Sierra Nevada, how people are starting to leave the global south because it's getting too hot, how our food system is on heading towards basically uh, multiple crop failures simultaneously, which could lead to massively increased levels of starvation, especially for the world's poor people. They don't get pissed off about that stuff. They get pissed off at climate activists who are desperately trying to wake people up. So that's neoliberal denial. And it's like what Martin Luther King said in his letter from Birmingham jail, right? It's actually the moderates. Uh, The the most confounding people are the the ones who lukewarmly agree and who say, Mm -hmm. now is not the time. We'll handle that later. There's higher priorities. And they tend to, you know, they sound like the serious people, right? And the the real politics and the ones who get practical reality, but they keep kicking the can down the road and leading us deeper and deeper into irreversible planetary uh, degradation and destruction of uh, life support systems. When I say irre- irreversible, I mean, uh, practically irreversible on civilizational and human timescales, right? So, uh, you know, that, that whole art thing, I thought was uh, the art activism thing—the Van Gogh paintings—and uh, more recently, you know, in the National Gallery, there are two activists who smeared paint on the glass base of a, a sculpture. Right? So they like they're very careful not to actually damage the art, and yet you have all these Democrats, these neoliberals, that just um, denounce them vociferously, uh, much louder than they denounce the fossil fuel industry. And I, I think that's absolutely also denial. And so that's where I tend to focus my energy. I'm like, if you understand what's happening. Happening. If you get these facts, you have to become a climate activist yourself, otherwise you don't really get them. You're not letting them percolate into sort of your spiritual core, your emotional core. You're keeping them comfortably, emotionally at arm's distance, right? So that you don't have to give up any privilege. So you don't have to give up your frequent flyer miles and flying around the world all the time and you're maybe in your private jets, right? A lot of these people. Um, so that really bugs me. Okay. So on one
0: hand, when I was coming up with questions, I wanted to make sure that we talked about some optimistic things. Mm. And I guess we can get to that. But while we're, we're here in the justifiably doom and gloom <laughs> aspect of the climate apocalypse, there's one aspect to it that I'd love to hear your take on, which is or are, and this is when I talk to a lot of environmentalists and climate activists, mm. they're not aware of the feedback loops. Like they think that the climate is changing on a sort of logarithmic level, like it's you know mm. sort, of, sort of like sort of year by year getting gradually. hotter. And when I start bringing up feedback loops, like the albedo effect or the melting of the permafrost, it sort of takes what we're dealing with, at least from my limited naive perspective, and makes it so much worse. I, I have yet to meet an environmentalist who knows what the albedo effect is. Oh, that's depressing to hear that.
1: Yeah, I don't. Is that the current? No,
0: that's the Atlantic Meridional Overturn Current. That's oh. AMOC, and that's That's also terrifying but the albedo effect from my and peter please correct me if i'm completely wrong because i'm a college dropout and you have like 17 phds but the albedo effect is when you go to the beach and you're walking on the white sand It's relatively cool. When you walk on the dark pavement, it's very hot. So as the ice caps melt, as there's less white ice and snow, it reveals the dark ocean underneath.
1: Making it even hotter faster.
0: Making basically like these, rather than reflecting all the heat into space, the Earth is now absorbing that much more heat.
2: Yeah, that's right, Moby. And, And also changes in clouds can contribute to the albedo effect too, right? So low marine clouds tend to reflect a lot of incoming solar radiation or off the coast of California for example you've heard of June gloom and if those low stratocumulus clouds which they tend to respond to sea surface temperatures so on a warmer planet there it looks like there's probably going to be less of them and that also would be a, a, another positive albedo effect so yeah you understand correctly and the the earth system is it's a insanely complex system with so many interlocking parts and our models tend to be they, they tend to be uh, other uh, models so there's a simplified version of the earth system i'm both terrified of the albedo
0: effect and the climate apocalypse but it's the first time that someone with multiple phd's Just one. in <laughs> science and physics has said that i'm that my analogy about the albedo effect was right so i'm feeling both like terrified and a little smug yeah.
2: We think we have a decent understanding of sort of like how the global average uh, surface temperature is going to increase over coming decades. So we'll probably, kind of get solidly past 1.5 degrees Celsius in the early 2030s. But we could be wrong. Like, we could be underestimating that those projected warmings. And I, I think our models haven't really um, uh, resolved things like the heat domes, like the one in the Pacific Northwest. So there's, there's definitely things that we don't really understand about the atmospheric dynamics and how these different parts of the Earth system are linked together. I'm afraid uh, that, uh, so I'm not an expert in tropical forests, but I think a scientist who I respect a lot said recently to me at a conference that he feels, he's a tropical forest expert, he feels that the uh, Amazon has already passed its tipping point, uh, which just uh, hit me like a bolt of lightning. um, Because I've been realized that I've been hanging on to a shred of hope that maybe if we acted really fast, and and there's no evidence that we will act really fast, but I still hope that we will. uh, Because I think social systems are also super nonlinear, and they could surprise us how how quickly we actually respond. Like I said, if we actually tried, we could stop this really fast. But it looks like Like according to one of the scientists on this planet who I respect the most uh, and who is an expert in the topic, which I am not, uh, but I do believe experts typically, that we've already probably lost the Amazon rainforest. And that is a, it just makes me feel so much grief.
0: Is it worth mentioning that 90% of deforestation is a result of meat and dairy production?
2: Uh, It's definitely worth mentioning that. So that's part of the loss. But I think the the thing that's going to finish it off is just global heating uh, which is dr- drying things out and causing fires and causing it to start converting into savannah. but yeah it's a, it's a combination of the conversion and the fragmentation uh, and the the animal agriculture so Al Gore's right. It's very hard to sell leaving animal agriculture. But if we were rational as a human species, uh, we would do that overnight. We would end animal agriculture for multiple reasons. But the main one is that we'd suddenly take a 15% chunk out of global heating, which would be huge. And we would stop. It'd be so much easier to feed everyone uh, with plant-based because it's so inefficient to convert the plants into animals first, then eat those animals. So it's just just, uh, it's so insanely, I guess you could say selfish of us as a species living in a planet in crisis uh, as we are right now to not do that. But I know that The vast majority of people in the United States would strongly disagree with me on that. And it's, um, I think we have sort of a compassion and empathy, a selfishness crisis where uh, so many of us just aren't able to think about others. We just tend to put our own desires first, even if it means other people are going to die. And um, that's the part that I don't really know how we change fast. And I agree with what you said earlier, Moby. I think if something causes the social system to pass a tipping point where suddenly, we start really dealing with this in a high priority way. We treat it like uh, like a World War II mobilization. What's probably going to do that is is fear you know, again, I, I sort of feel like an asshole for saying this, but we we have fear for a reason. It's supposed to protect us when we're in danger. And make no mistake, we are definitely in danger right now.
1: Um, To keep going on that, you keep talking about shifting social structures and helping people to start to care and understand that their actions, what they consume, what they buy every day have impacts, which people don't want to believe because it's very inconvenient. Mm. Like how, how do you see that happening?
2: Yeah, great question, Lindsay. So I think my my tagline, I guess, if I have a tagline, is that we need a billion climate activists. I just want climate activism to spread virally through the population um, so that the people, I I think it's only going to come from the grassroots. The rich elites who are in power right now have made it extremely clear that they're not going to voluntarily change. I talked to a couple of fossil fuel executives uh, a few years ago, and they just brazenly told me, like, we'll go as fast. Fast as our customers want. Like, yeah, like, fuck you. You know, it's not, it's not on us. It's on like all of mm-hmm. you guys who are using our products, even though their, their industry is like, a, you can't, you can't repeat this too often. Everyone needs to know that the fossil fuel industry has been lying for decades systematically. They've been colluding between the different corporations to create various nonprofits that spread misinformation and that lobby politicians to block action, even Democrats like Chuck Schumer. So it's just this, this whole racket, right? Because for them, they, they're they're looking at trillions of over a trillion dollars in profits every year, right? And then they, they can buy off Chuck Schumer for $287,000. It's insanely a good deal for them, right? And there were four fossil fuel CEOs who in 2021 uh, were questioned by Congress. I don't know if you guys remember that. It was the Chevron and the Exxon and the Shell CEOs. And they were asked point blank by congressional representatives, will you you stop spreading disinformation? Will you stop funding the American Petroleum Institute, which you know spreads disinformation? And they would not agree to that. Uh, they brazenly said, no, we're going to keep doing that. We're going They did a, a corporate speak, like legal speak, right? They basically filibuster the way out of the question, but it was clear what their intent was, which is to continue misinforming. So that's just to say that it, the only way we're going to come out of this is through grassroots movement. I'm, I'm quite convinced of that. And the good news is it's getting it's getting much, much stronger. Uh, like a couple of years ago, um, some of the projects I'm doing would get lukewarm. Like, yeah, that's sort of interesting. And now people are eagerly saying yes to things and joining forces and networking. So so there has been a, a real change over the last uh, couple of years It hasn't really translated into action yet. But I think it's it's this potential that's building up. And I do think you know, I want to make it really clear to everyone that there's never going to be a point that we should stop fighting because it's just we lose more and more every day that we continue burning fossil fuels Um, but there's still a lot on this planet that we haven't lost yet i mean look at it compared to mars like what a Crap! Place Mars is compared to Earth. Even an injured Earth, a degraded <laughs> Earth, is still this miraculous oasis in the vast, cold, uh, violent cosmos of space. And we we cling to this rock as if our lives depend on it, because they do. And we've lost our way as a species. We've stopped feeling gratitude for this planet, and we've stopped feeling the joy of being one species among many on this uh, on this Earth. And I think we have to find our way back to that. But I think we're only gonna do that after we get afraid enough of all that we're losing that we actually stop fossil fuels put these ceos that have been lying in jail transition in a in a very fast and uh uh, equitable way that a way that protects the working class and and the most vulnerable people because we need that right we have when we transition away from fossil fuels we absolutely have to make do it in a way that doesn't crush working class people if they Feel like they can't live, they're going to be against any any such policies, right? They're gonna we. They have to be part of the transition, and they have to support it.
1: Um, you you said uh, people have to fight, and people have to keep fighting and continue to fight. But what does that look like when you say that in this context? What is that fight? What what does it entail uh, it's, in it's your eyes?
2: Just everything that uh, any particular person can think of doing, uh, but especially joining up with other people and especially taking risks. So I think. Uh, effective activism, in my experience, uh, is effective if... You're taking some risks because, again, it's it's all about basically breaking through this sort of manufactured silence. This um sense that, you know, it's a it's a pretty enough day today, so I'm not going to worry about climate change. Or you know, the scientists don't seem that worried. Uh, the the world leaders don't seem that worried. So I've got a million other things to worry about today, so I'm not going to worry about climate change. Uh, we have to break through that manufactured silence, and the way you do that is by um, demonstrating that you know, and communicating in an effective way that this is genuinely an emergency. So once you understand that it's an emergency, you have to start changing your actions to to act in accordance with that deep knowledge that you now have that this is an emergency. And then that starts to spread from person to person. And that's what's happening right now uh, through the movement. Like we've got more climate activists doing civil disobedience than ever before in in history. You know, we've always had frontline people like for a long time, uh, Indigenous people especially, have been working as hard as they can to protect the earth um, uh, because of the history that they've had, the, the brutal trauma that they've experienced for hundreds of years. And now more and more people are starting to finally join them. But we need more of that. And uh, we need people to also be advocates in their places of work, for example, in their institutions. Um, So many nonprofits, universities, professional societies are basically holding things back by continuing to invest in fossil fuels, by sort of waiting and seeing, uh, being followers instead of leaders. We need to push all of these institutions to be proactive. There's, There's just like this huge vacuum of leaders Right now, uh, on climate change, like look at the look at the so-called world leaders. Uh, there's there's no one out there who's leading uh, the way. Maybe we had leaders in World War II, for example. Um, they're all just uh, trying to play it safe in the short term, which is incredibly dangerous for all of us in the long term. So to that end, when you look at the current
0: state of climate activism, where do you find inspiration? Like, you, who are the the leaders that you're actually inspired by? What are the organizations who you think are doing great work? Because I'd love to draw attention to like the inspiring leaders, whether it's Greta or the or the organizations you believe in.
2: Yeah, Greta has been arrested now. So so, um, uh, which is fantastic. Yeah, any any activist who's who's risking arrest, who's doing civil disobedience, uh, those are my siblings. Um, those are the. People on this planet, uh, among the people on this planet who I love the most, Uh, they are incredibly dear to me um, uh, because they're so courageous. They're facing uh, new laws that are being developed, and even in the United Kingdom, even in some states here in the the United States, that are uh, punishing climate activists, basically criminalizing nonviolent protest. So, yeah, Just Stop Oil in England, Climate Defiance is a a brand new group here in the United States. Uh, They've been tactically brilliant. Uh, They've been basically disrupting fundraisers and speeches from politicians like like Chuck Schumer and others who are basically climate hypocrites and making them squirm. They shouldn't be, you know, Biden shouldn't be allowed, for example, to self-label himself a climate champion, which is exactly what he's doing repeatedly now. Instead, the hypocrisy, uh, the expansion of fossil fuels should be called out, you know, as often as possible. It should be, I hope it becomes a really big uh, campaign issue for the 2024 election. Um, I'm not sure it will, but that's where we have to be. So civil disobedience, people taking risks, uh, people potentially losing their jobs even because they're doing the right thing and standing up to the grotesque hypocrisy of their institutions. I've got several friends who, who are in that category. And I am hoping that As the grassroots movement grows and as climate catastrophes get more intense and more frequent, all of my brothers and sisters who are taking these risks and experiencing these costs in their lives, they will be seen as clearly being on the right side of history. And they will be seen as the heroes that they are and the heroines that they are. And um, those of them who are in prison will be released (laughs) because things are getting, things are starting to get really quite. Real, you know, um, but but they're on the right side of history. The world leaders who are expanding fossil fuel fuels and the corporate leaders who are lying and bribing uh, for inaction—they are clearly on the wrong side of history. And and I can't wait until the average person just fully realizes that. So I have a a question, and
0: maybe this is also a contentious thing in the world of climate activism. What are your thoughts on geoengineering, like uh, building giant solar shields?
2: Yeah, good question. So extremely dangerous, Um, heartbreaking that we're getting so close to that point. Um, The one geoengineering idea that I think is actually practically feasible is basically emitting sulfate pollution in the upper atmosphere by by airplanes. Um, so these little particles of pollution can reflect sunlight, these little aerosol particles. Uh, and that would be relatively cheap. You know, in Ministry for the Future, a recent novel by Kim Stanley Robinson, there was a, just a mega heat wave in India. And by the way, um, I think it's, at this point, it's only a question of when there's going to be a heat wave that kills uh, more than a million people. Not a question of if that happens. Maybe that'll be a big wake up call. But anyway, a heat wave like that happens in India. And India unilaterally decides to do stratospheric aerosol geoengineering. Um, So that one is relatively cheap. It's feasible. But basically, it just masks the problem. It doesn't deal with the underlying cause, which again, you know, is fossil fuels and animal agriculture, right? Until you end those two things, uh, it will just keep getting worse and worse, and we will lock in more irreversible damage. But you can mask it by reflecting some of the incoming uh, sunlight with these aerosol particles that you emit high up in the atmosphere. But if you ever stop doing that, you'll experience what's called termination shock. And then suddenly, in a matter of months, you'll get just a huge spike in temperature all, the, all that incoming sunlight that you've been blocking will pour into the earth and you'll get a very quick spike in in uh, global temperatures, which would be catastrophic. So once you do that, it's kind of a devil's bargain. You're going to change precipitation patterns. So you'll have some countries be losers in that sense. You'll maybe increase drought, change the patterns of agriculture that have traditionally held. And then if you, if you ever stop, you're going to have this huge termination shock. And then the third problem with it is politics will almost certainly uh, use it as a way to relieve pressure on them to actually do something meaningful, um, which is uh, ending the fossil fuel industry on an emergency mode basis. That's what we need to do. Everything else is all this other stuff about soil, carbon and uh, carbon capture and, um, you know, this and like all these other solutions are just like uh, beating around the bush compared to ending the fossil fuel industry. That's the only thing that matters. And look at what the fossil fuel industry has managed to do. They've even taken over the COP process, right? So COP28 uh, later this year is going to be led by a fossil fuel executive and it's ba- basically been completely infiltrated by uh, the fossil fuel industry for the last two years, that's been the largest delegate at the United Nations meetings for ending climate change. So like the Fox is really in the henhouse, and um, it's just so out in the open, but somehow the media doesn't report it with urgency and then people don't really realize what's happening. And um, this is the problem with this kind of corporate oligarchy that we have right now. Uh, this neoliberal capitalism is that they've, it's, it's w- maybe worse than the robber barons that we learned about in history class, because they've learned how to control the politicians and the political system, and they've learned how to control the media. And so what do we, the people, um, what what does the grassroots movement really have left? Like social media? I I mean, Musk bought Twitter. So it's just, uh, if the media was reporting with urgency and uh, clearly pointing out that fossil fuel executives are... Probably the biggest criminals uh, in human history that I think the climate movement would grow much, much more quickly. But they're not doing that.
1: I feel like there's a thing that I notice. like I'll see because you're talking when you mention the media and reporting on it. But every time I see the media reporting, they treat climate change and doing things that are better for the planet almost as some- something cute. Like cats wearing clothes, like <laughs> like they're like, and here's something nice wow. you can do for the planet. You can compose. look at this well, compost, like, you know what I mean like the yeah. end
0: of inconvenient <laughs> truth, what Peter, what you were saying? It's like you present this catastrophic apocalyptic scenario, and then you're like, swap out your light bulbs. It's like, oh, yeah, wow, if I... if I <laughs> yeah, yeah, a
2: surprising thing about me, like people would probably not expect me to say this, but I don't give a fuck if you recycle. It's not bad to recycle, but don't think of it as a climate solution. It's a, it's a corporate sop to make you feel like you're doing something when you're really not. And so then the corporations can keep on taking their profit.
0: It's one thing I wanted to bring up, which is what I call the we are the world phenomena. If you remember when they had we are the world with Michael Jackson and... Team, uh, mm-hmm. and they had these huge concerts. Also, like the um the Do They Know It's Christmas? Bob Geldof, and basically after We Are the World and Do They Know It's Christmas? Um, people thought that world hunger had been solved, and as a result, all the NGOs working on world hunger they had like one year where they received tons of donations, and mm-hmm. then nothing because your average person was like, well, I did my bit, I watched the show and I gave $10 mm-hmm. to a 900 number. And I worry with climate activism, and I'm probably guilty of this as well, is like you think to yourself like, oh, I drive an electric car and I keep the temperature at a reasonable level in the winter and the summer, and I try to walk places. So clearly I'm doing my part yeah. and the problem solved. So there's that danger that like the smallest effort is actually having huge consequences. Yeah, when it doesn't I, I, seem like that's the case. Right. Like
1: not using straws right. because yeah. of turtle deaths. Kind of but not me but nuts. then still eating fish. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. And it's not like those th- those things aren't bad things to do, but again, it's just like it's the corporations controlling the story and controlling the narrative. And what we need to do is end those corporations. We have to end the fossil fuel corporations. Uh, corporations. End them. Um, they they could have been allies. They could have they could have chosen they could have chosen to tell the truth and they could have chosen to say like you know what our products are destroying the planet and we have to phase them out as quickly as possible and we're going to become energy corporations and not fossil fuel corporations. They did not do that. Everyone mm-hmm. needs to know that. Everyone should be fucking yeah. furious at these corporations. And the executives and the lobbyists that are behind them, because they made a conscious choice to take our planet into the uh, the brink of catastrophe and beyond for the sake of their profits, even though they already had more money than they knew what to do with the narcissism, the ego, the just like the stupidity. People need to understand how stupid these people are. People think that because they're rich, they must be smart. Nothing could be further from the truth. There's literally nothing dumber than destroying the the planet, the spaceship that you live on, that's keeping you alive—it's—it's it's ridiculously dumb, especially when you don't need to. Um, because there's so many, uh, we we could organize society without fossil fuels. But these corporations aren't let—they're uh, making sure we don't do this because it's such a uh, gravy train for them to keep doing this. It's as dumb as that. Like it's so dumb at the root of it. And somehow we have to wrest the power away from them because, like I said earlier, they've made it very clear that. Uh, that they're not going to voluntarily be part of the solution. Um, so yeah, that's, if you're concerned about this, yeah, don't don't just, you know, drive in an electric car and do all that good stuff. That's the least of it. You have to join up with others. You have to become an activist. You have to take risks. You have to stick your neck out, speak out, uh, do things that make you a little uncomfortable at work, um, stand up to institutions and ultimately uh, risk arrest. And then probably the movement's going to even go past that as people realize what a life or death thing this actually is. I mean, one thing it reminds me of
0: is the industries that we're talking about They're all incredibly old, crappy industries. And if we look at human history, there's this constant process of disruption, you know, where like the old industry that's like that's messy, that's inefficient, gets ideally replaced by something better. And this reminds me a little bit like imagine it's like the early 20th century and imagine like the people making wax cylinders for music are confronted with MP3s and they squash the MP3 industry so everyone keeps buying wax. Mm -hmm. Cylinders or like horse drawn carriage industry destroys the automobile industry, (laughs) which maybe they should have. But it's, I I sometimes wish that the Democrats or the progressives would sort of recognize there's the carrot and the stick, Mm -hmm. and the stick is very clear. It's like the world is an inch away from complete catastrophe and collapse. In fact, we're experiencing it right now. But the carrot would be let's create industries that are based on future technology that. That are efficient, that that won't destroy the planet, at least to the extent that these current industries are. Because think about it, like oil and coal and gas and meat and bacon, like these are old garbage industries. And I feel like there could be a selling point and maybe even, I hate to say it, like to incentivize people in the world of finance to say like, look, why are you still living in the past? Like the future Mm. is clean energy. The future is clean protein. The future is not these old, terrible industries, just like the future is not cigarettes and compact discs. The future is not horse-drawn carriages.
2: So Moby, my first arrest, uh, April 6th of last year of 2022, um, I was actually... Was it J.P. Morgan, right? Yeah, I was protesting that that money pipeline. The fact that you know, J.P. Morgan Chase they fund, they do more to fund and support the expansion of the fossil fuel industry than any other institution on the planet. And without that financial support, without that funding, fossil fuel industry wouldn't be able to build all their their new pipelines and whatnot. Um, so, so yeah, it's it's incredibly important. Um, I think it's this horrible short term outlook because we live in this um, profit obsessed capitalist. There's this like most reductive version of capitalism that you can possibly imagine where literally nothing matters except the next profit, uh, the quarters, the the, you know, the revenues for the next quarter, right, and shareholder profits. So in that system, it's like the earth can go to hell, um, you know, people around the world, vulnerable people, people in the global south, they can go to hell in this form of extractive capitalism, which is kind of the root cause, right? So it's We need to go to some more socialistic way of organizing society, which basically means we have to start looking out for each other, basically, instead of just like taking as much as we possibly can, which is sort of a sociopathic way to organize a society. And when you think about it, right, everyone in it for themselves. I don't care. Care if you die. Yeah.
0: And one very odd paradox about that, that I'm sure we have all experienced firsthand is that so the rich people, they ruin the environment to make a ton Mm. of money to buy a country house. So clearly they like the environment. They're just ha- So it's so paradoxical, like, OK, so you're going to cut down the forest to make money so you can buy a house in a forest. It's such a weird paradox. But the other odd paradox yeah. is they're miserable, like they're destroying the planet and creating all this misery and this hardship. And every wealthy person I've ever met is on antidepressants and anti-anxieties. They're cheating on their spouses. They're just there's so much unhappiness among the billionaire class, among the millionaire class. Class and so it is this terrible thing like we're we're destroying the planet to create wealth for people who are miserable when they're they, wealthy
2: and so so I think that's probably a good a good segue into kind of maybe talking about some of the more spiritual aspects of this crisis because um, I think they've just gotten so addicted to their own egos um, and they're so ignorant they can't see that that causes suffering and you know if you do something nice for somebody else you get these endorphins, you feel wonderful when you do that. Like that's the, the easiest way to feel like really good and happy is basically to just go around and do nice things for other people. And when, the opposite of that, when you are just like so uh, obsessed with having more for yourself and and let's be clear, like they don't love nature and a nice environment. They, they love nature and a nice environment for themselves. And like everyone else can be damned, right? Because uh, right. they just want everything for themselves. And the more... Uh, they see other people suffering, the more they kind of feel special, which is sort of what their egos want. And then look at like, it's it's like private, multiple private jets aren't enough for them. Now they're like making their own space companies, right? So it's like they they want to enclose the whole universe. It's like this, they're, they're like, speaking of gravitation, they're like black holes of ego. There's never going to be enough money. There's never going to be enough power. Uh, there's never going to be enough suffering of others for their egos. And so it's their basically their egos have been unchecked.
1: So, so this makes me think because I, I see I see a world where billionaires are buying yachts and going to space, but I also see a world where some people feel so desperate because they know that if their wife gets cancer. Then they're looking at $500,000 that they're going to have to pay out of pocket because they couldn't afford the insurance to begin with. So yeah, if a fuel company offers, if a fossil fuel related company offers them a job, they're going to take it and they're going to work their ass off because they have bills to pay because we're living in a society where human beings are not supported, where no millennial can buy a house, where everyone is just grasping at straws to survive. So they'll take whatever they're given just to be able to...
2: That's where the billionaires want us. Uh, That's that's why... we're so helpless that's that's a big part of why it's so hard to build a grassroots movement um, you know, it's, a, it's the biggest David and Goliath story right mm-hmm. like uh, these like poor activists who are living a day-to-day basis right and can barely make ends meet and they're going up against uh, historically the most powerful mm-hmm. corporations and people the wealthiest people the planet has ever seen it's just um, it's really grotesque
1: like since the Catholic Church or something <laughs> but worse
2: yeah and and again this this is why I, I said earlier we, we have to make sure that the energy transition has a capitalism transition along with it, which is to say protects the working class. Mm-hmm. So it has to be equitable. That's the only way to do it. So like look at gasoline, right? So gasoline is a far bigger issue in the United States than global heating and the, and the literally the destruction of the only planet we know in the universe that has life. So I think the Biden administration—they the reason they begged OPEC to increase production, and the reason they've like been setting records, uh, beating even Trump in terms of the new drilling that they've been doing—is because they're desperate to keep gas prices down, because mm-hmm. they feel like they'll lose elections, um, that, that they won't be in power anymore if uh, gas prices get too high. Um, meanwhile, the the fossil fuel executives that provide that gasoline have been making record profits from those, uh, you know, from higher gasoline prices, and just laughing all their way to the bank. Um, And what the the solution. Because they
1: want Republicans in office because they get a whole lot more. Yeah.
2: Yeah. The solution couldn't be more clear, right? You have to have policies that start ramping down the fossil fuel industry. So you have to start restricting supply because supply of fossil fuel is what's killing our planet. But you have to do it in a way that protects the working class. It's it's not enough just to ramp Mm -hmm. down the supply. If you do that, you get working class revolt. They'll put in, you know, a Republican who starts drilling some more and then we're fucked. Right. And fossil fuel executive will get richer. So you can't just squeeze the supply. You also have to have price controls, for example, maybe nationalizing the fossil fuel industry, controlling and rationing the price to make sure working class people can still get to their jobs and then have policies to increase public transportation, uh, to get transportation away from gasoline vehicles altogether, uh, which takes some time. But meanwhile, you need, you, know, you need working class to have affordable gasoline. And guess how you do that? You tax the billionaire class or you can do a carbon fee and dividend Mm. where everyone pays into uh, this kitty based on how much fossil fuel you use. Because guess what? Rich people, Bill Gates... His carbon impact and fossil fuel use is what like tens of thousands of times more than the average person's. Maybe you know, like he's just constantly in his private jet. So they'll be pay, those rich people would pay more in, and then you would do, distribute it equitably to everyone. So that's just one dumb version of a policy. Uh, but basically, all all of those policies would would have the ultimate effect of reallocating wealth away from these uh, capitalistic black holes, which we call billionaires and the ultra rich, and back towards the working class people who can barely survive right now. Um, so yeah, so so solving global heating uh, is in, inextricably related to solving this problem of grotesque wealth inequality and extractive capitalism, right? It's not just me being a leftist. Um, th- that's the only practical way to get out of this. Otherwise, you get, you know, the yellow jacket revolts like you had in France when they, they put a uh, tax on gasoline. And I wish we had a little more of that here in the United States, because yeah, it's like in the too. United States, they give us like streaming video and then like everyone just kind of like they just come off the streets and watch videos and they're placated. You know, that's that's sort of what it feels like. And then the billionaires can continue running amok and like raping and pillaging the entire planet. So, see, I wish we had a little bit more of that sort of class concern and protest here in the United States, because um, I, th- I think that's what we need to get out of this mess, to be honest. Oh, you're absolutely right. Yeah.
1: It's like we're, we're all the kid with the iPad at the table. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, just watch this and the adults are going to talk. <laughs>
2: w- w- yeah. Well, well. To spe- speaking of adults, we we all have to realize that we have to be the adults, that basically no one's coming to save us. Right. We're on this planet Earth and it is in peril right now. And because of that, we're all also in peril. And we have to stand up and be adults and stand up to these idiotic rich people and save what can still be saved. I, I can't, I don't know how to say it any more clearly. This will happen eventually. We will stand up and take a stand. Um, but but I hope it happens sooner rather than later because, like I said earlier, every day we wait, we lose more irreversibly. So come on, people, fight. <laughs> fight. I think that's a wonderful yeah. place to end on. Yeah, yeah. yeah so God fight. damn it, people, um, fight. Let's so go. So I guess... Uh, <laughs> we, can, we can do this. <laughs> I, I know we can do this, but we got to band together. We got to do it now. And we got to somehow break out of this this sort of like... Uh, we're, we're, I feel like we're sort of anesthetized by by kind of material uh, stuff or something, you know?
1: I'd love to hear from you, Peter, just to kind of and on a positive note, um, so people don't have to go take a nap um, because they're a sadness nap. Am I the only one that has to do that? Oh, I, might take, just be I take me? a
0: daily sadness nap. Okay,
1: good. <laughs> yeah. Of what are you feeling? What What is making you feel hopeful? Are there any innovations that are coming through? Is there anything that is making you feel like, you know... Th- just cause for optimism. Exactly. Light at the end of the tunnel almost.
2: Yeah, there's, there's two things, and I've already mentioned them both, so uh, people hoping that there's gonna be like a big revelation, might be a little disappointed, but (laughs) the two things are that we barely started to try. Um, And if we really started to try coherently as a society, uh, we would, I'm convinced we would solve this very, very quickly. We would surprise ourselves at how we'd be like, oh, that was easier than we thought. We put the CEOs in jail. We ended the fossil fuel industry. We lived a little bit more simply for a while. We transitioned to renewables. We ended animal agriculture. We would solve this so fast. We've barely started to try and we're still divided. We're still squabbling. We're we're still being divided by the uh, elite rich class, right? Who like have us fighting over cultural issues. The working class people, whether they're conservative or liberal, they should band together and realize who the true enemy is, which which are the rich elites. And then the rich elites don't, they don't have allegiance to, uh, they they have allegiance to one thing, right? Which is their own egos. So that's the first thing that gives me hope. We haven't started to try yet, which is a weird kind of hope, right? Because there's a chance that we won't start to try but, but I'd like to think that we will. Um, and the second thing that gives me hope are the the beautiful, courageous activists who are taking risks, who are out there in the streets, who are disrupting Chuck Schumer's uh, campaign events, who are risking arrest, who are risking prison time, who are just these selfless, courageous, beautiful, just fiery souls. And I, I should have said this when I was talking about my first arrest. It was one of the best things i've ever done in my whole life to to finally feel like i was a sibling to all of those beautiful people out there was just a, a very, very liberating feeling. And um, if you can swing it, and I know it's, it's hard, um, and, and it's risky, and uh, the, some people have a lot more risk than others. But if you feel like you can swing it, I, I highly encourage you to get involved with um, nonviolent civil disobedience. Uh, that's, I think that's the spearhead of the movement right now. And if we have uh, large, large numbers of people doing that, I think we'll really move the needle.
1: So get your chains, get yourself a lock.
2: (laughs) Get creative. Get very creative. Do stuff
0: that no one's done before. Yeah. I guess prison is the new black. black. Before we sign off, I just wanted to say one thing that I personally find encouraging is— The history of humans fixing problems, usually that humans have created, you know, I mean, it's worth remembering 100 years ago in the United States, women couldn't vote. You know, 15 Mm -hmm. years ago, same sex people couldn't get married. Mm -hmm. 15 years ago, people were smoking on airplanes. And Peter, to your point, where sometimes change happens Mm -hmm. at lightning speed. Like when I was growing up, the Soviet Union was just a thing. We thought it was always going to be there. Then lo and behold, the Berlin Wall is down. So there is to your point it's the opposite of death by a thousand cuts there might be healing by a thousand Mm -hmm. non-cuts like healing like all of a sudden maybe we have like this great awakening where people stop using animals for food they stop using fossil fuels we replace all of the energy production with whether who knows maybe suddenly cold fusion will become viable like it's possible and i'm holding out hope for this and i maybe i'm just like the, who's the opposite of Cassandra? That's a good question. Is that the opposite sort of like, so maybe I'm being the opposite of Cassandra by saying like maybe there's this chance that 10 years from now, we will all meet up and be like, Oh, remember how scared we were, mm-hmm. and we fixed it. That's that's because that's, we worked really hard. That's because we worked hard, and like lo and behold, yeah, that's
2: that's yeah. my dream too. That's exactly my dream. I hope I get to see that in my lifetime, and I think that is the lesson. If if the cosmos is trying to teach us a lesson through global heating and biodiversity loss, that's what it is. It's saying, grow the fuck up, humans, and I hope we do because it's it's going to be the most beautiful mm-hmm. feeling. I think we'll be sad at what we lost and that it took us as long as it did. But it's going to be, it's going to be amazing as well to get to that level of maturity. So I, I, truly hope that I live to see that happen.
1: And we'll be happier, too, because we'll be more connected with our planet. We'll breathe deeper. We'll know our children will live in a world that's not going to burn up. I think it'll be such a huge sense of relief once we get to the other side of it. Um, Peter, can you take a moment to just tell anyone listening where they can find you or any books that you've written or documentaries maybe you've made, um, what they are and where they can find them and you? Personally.
2: Yeah, so I'm climate human on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And I have a book which was published in 2017. So uh, it's it's a little out of date, but it's got a lot of good stuff in there too. Uh, it's called Being the Change, Live Well and Spark a Revolution.
0: Well, great. This is, I mean, you know, it's funny, Peter, maybe I shouldn't I- admit this, but like Lindsay and I were both really nervous, not just because this is the first remote podcast we've done, but also because we revere you and the work you're doing and the inspiration you're setting. So this has been both a nerve wracking experience, <laughs> but such an honor having you on
2: the on on the show
1: i was like god i hope i don't talk about cats and clothes on this <laughs> podcast and i did it and i failed
2: <laughs> all right you guys well thank you so much for having me it's, it's been a great conversation
0: there's this question and i don't want to be overarching but like why start a podcast like why make the effort to have a podcast. And one of the reasons is to talk to people like Peter Kalmus, to talk about climate change, to talk about the things that people can do in their own lives or politically or on a corporate level to address climate change. And of course, one of my great frustrations among journalists, among environmentalists, among philanthropists, among even climate activists and scientists is the unwillingness to look at the role of meat and dairy production in climate change. Like I can't tell you the number of times I've read an article in the New Yorker or the Atlantic or the wherever about climate change and they don't mention animal agriculture. They don't mention meat and dairy production. And it makes me crazy because we cannot in a serious, impactful way address climate change without addressing meat and dairy production. So I just wanted to say thank you to Peter Kalmas for being one of the few climate scientists who loudly and unapologetically talks about how dire the situation is with the climate, but also the role of meat and dairy production and climate change.
1: It's a beautiful thing because it's very easy to just not buy meat and dairy for yourself. It's such an easy thing that you can do that is a form of activism for climate change. It's amazing to me that you can just go buy a different thing and still feel great.
0: I mean, of course, I love getting on my soapbox about this, and I have gotten on my soapbox about veganism and meat and dairy many, many times, but it is the Swiss army knife of activism. You know, by giving up meat and dairy, you reduce your climate impact, you reduce the use of antibiotics, you protect against rainforest deforestation, you protect against Cancer, diabetes, heart disease, obesity, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like, and you save animals. It's just so interesting that people who ostensibly care about And I don't want to be critical, but like, it's just so odd when you talk to people and they're like, they care about animals, they care about climate change, they care about deforestation, they care about human health, they care about workers' rights, but they still continue to buy meat and dairy, which contributes to all of those problems that people supposedly care about. It's just so, the cognitive dissonance is baffling to me.
1: Truly, same.
0: So long-winded way of saying, thank you, Peter Kalmus, and please, if we don't address climate change, every other thing we care about will potentially be destroyed. And I know I wish there was a friendlier, lighter way to look at it. But there just isn't. Mm. On that note, on that sad, potentially dark, depressing note, is that too depressing? Is that too dark? Well, here's,
1: here's what we're taking from this, is that you can do things. You can read Peter Kalmus's book, connect with him, follow him on social media, stop eating meat, fly less, try to do all of these things that can lighten your footprint, but also support politicians that support green endeavors.
0: Yeah, and regarding this one last thing, with politicians and corporations, as we've talked about, like, they work for us. The reason politicians ignore climate change is because not that many of their constituents care about climate change. Mm -hmm. The reason corporations ignore climate change is because no one is really speaking up about climate change. So it's our job to be the loud activist voices that make politicians respond, that make corporations respond, because they will as long as we are willing to speak up. So
1: speak up. Um, I want to say thank you to Jonathan Nesvadba, who edits this podcast masterfully. Um, And I also want to say thank you to Human Content, who distributes this podcast for us in a very kind and thorough way.
0: And thank you for listening. And the very last thing is we want to do a podcast. Lindy and I were talking about money. and you know, we realized that a lot of people have tons of questions about money, whether it's personal finances, global finances, What is a SPAC? What is, um, did I just use an acronym that made you uncomfortable?
1: Yeah, it sounds like a a snack and a spank had a baby.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So if you have any questions about money, please send them in because we want to do an episode that talks about money, which is like this uncomfortable thing that no one wants to talk about. But we realize a lot of people have questions and hopefully we will be able to address and help answer some.